You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. From 1917 to 1957, 3,100 soldiers and 54,000 pigeons made up the United States Army Pigeon Service, who delivered messages with an astounding 90% success rate. One American pigeon, known as G.I. Joe, even received a medal for gallantry after delivering a vital last-minute message informing British forces that the Italian village they were about to attack was actually under British control, thus preventing a friendly fire disaster that might have resulted in a thousand deaths. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Though I'm related by blood, marriage, and ex-marriage to a member of all five branches of the service, yes, the Coast Guard counts, I myself am civilian through and through. I'd probably be more useful and less dangerous in a support role than in the infantry. It takes between one and four support staff to keep each soldier in the field. There are obvious jobs like medic and supply, and more niche things like writer and graphic designer. We had a poll on our Facebook and Instagram last week as to what the topic for this week should be. Strange military jobs took a slight lead, but when I started researching, the other topics we're going through today just sort of fell in my lap. So we will do the strange military jobs in another episode. The men of the pigeon service were called, appropriately, pigeoneers. The most famous of their charges was one cher ami, which is French for dear friend. Perhaps the most important message that he carried was the one on October 4, 1918. The 77th Infantry Division, known as the Liberty Division because most of its 500 men were from New York, were trapped in a small depression on the side of a hill. Surrounded by enemy soldiers, many were killed and wounded on the first day. By the second day, only a little more than 200 men were alive and uninjured. Their commanding officer sent out several pigeons to tell his commanders where they were and how bad the situation was. By the next day, he had only one pigeon left. The second afternoon, American artillery tried to assist by firing hundreds of large rounds into the ravine where the Germans had surrounded the Liberty Division. Unfortunately, the artillery unit didn't know exactly where the Liberty Division was and started dropping shells right on top of them. The Major called for his last pigeon, Cher Ami. He wrote a quick and simple note and put it in the canister on Cher Ami's leg. We're along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. As Cherami took flight, the Germans saw him and opened fire. The American infantrymen watched in crushing sorrow 
as bullets filled the air and Cherami began to fall out of the sky. Somehow, Cherami managed to start climbing again, higher and higher beyond the range of the enemy guns. The determined pigeon flew 25 miles, or 40 meters, in a little over 25 minutes to deliver the message. The shelling was stopped, and the remaining members of the Liberty Division were saved. On his last mission, Cher Ami was badly wounded. When he finally reached his coop, the soldier that answered the sound of the bell that the pigeons were trained to ring to signal that they had returned, found the little bird laying on his back covered in blood. He had been blinded in one eye, and a bullet had hit his breastbone, making a hole the size of a quarter. And that's a big hole on a little bird. His right leg was held on by a few tendons. Attached to the leg was the silver canister with the all-important message. Once again, Cher Ami wouldn't quit until his job was done. Medics worked long and hard to patch him up, though they weren't able to save his leg. When the French soldiers that were fighting alongside the Americans learned the story of Cher Ami's bravery and determination, they gave him one of their country's greatest honors, the French Croix de Guerre with palm leaf. The men of the division were careful to take care of the little bird that had saved hundreds of lives and even carved a tiny wooden leg for him. When Cher Ami was well enough to travel, the little one-legged hero was put on a boat to the United States where he became a media darling. Upon his death, Cherami was stuffed and preserved for future generations. Which is a funny way to say thanks for saving hundreds of people. Though I have to admit, the taxidermist did a really good job. It's on a little wooden base and everything, it looks great. Cherami had been trained and donated to the U.S. by the British Army. The British used so many pigeons that after World War II, they created a special Medal of Honor just for military animals, called the Dickens Medal. Thirty-two pigeons, eighteen dogs, three horses, and one cat have been awarded the medal since 1943. That cat, a cutie-patootie tuxedo named Simon, was smuggled aboard the HMS Amethyst by a young sailor. Luckily, the captain was also a cat person and Simon was commissioned to improve morale, but more importantly, control the vermin that threatened the sailors' finite rations. Though Simon's job security was predicated on the captain never seeing any cat muck. Simon took his job very seriously, often bringing the dead rodents to the captain's cabin as proof of his productivity. In 1949, the Amethyst was ordered up the Yangtze River to protect the British Embassy during the Chinese Revolution. Communist forces began to shell the ship, severely damaging it and causing it to run aground. Twenty-five men, including the captain, were killed, and many more were injured. Even Simon was burned and took shrapnel when a shell blasted through the wall of the captain's cabin where he was sleeping. Once all of the human casualties had been tended, the medic addressed Simon. They were able to get the ship moving again, but only barely and not very far. No other ship could get close enough to assist without suffering the same fate. The sailors were effectively trapped, like people in a walled city under siege. There was no way to get supplies. Whatever food they had on board was all they had. While Simon was laid up recovering, 
the rat population on the ship exploded. They had done serious damage to the food supply and were even invading the crew quarters. Once he got his feet under him again, it was time for Simon to go back to work, and he had a job of work ahead of him. One large rat in particular, that the crew had nicknamed Mao Zedong, was especially aggressive and clever enough to avoid the traps. When they finally met face to face, Simon leapt first and killed the enormous rat. The men were so elated that Simon was given the rank of Able Sea Cat, a special variation of Able Seaman. He also accepted a special commission from the medical officer to spend time in the sickbay to keep the wounded sailor's spirits up. When the amethyst was finally repaired and able to get away, Simon, like Cher Ami, was a national hero. From birds to cats to dogs. Dogs have been a part of human warfare for as long as there have been both dogs and war. They were especially important during the Vietnam War, or as they call it in Vietnam, the American War, for everything from base security to detecting ambushes. 4,000 dogs served with U.S. troops, including one that was made a Navy SEAL and awarded two Purple Hearts, despite the fact that they're only for humans, a German Shepherd named Prince. Yet, like thousands of other working military dogs at the time, Prince was abandoned in Vietnam. The Pentagon had unfounded concerns that the dogs, some of whom had been family pets or police dogs before their service, might bring back communicable diseases. The dogs were considered surplus equipment and ordered to be euthanized. Of those 4,000, 1,600 were euthanized, some were given to the South Vietnamese Army, and many were just plain abandoned. Only 200 returned to the States. There is a resource for Vietnam veterans who want to know what happened to the dogs they served with. The Vietnam Dog Handler Association website, vhda.us, contains information about the fates of many of these dogs. Bill Cummings, a veteran who was one of the estimated 10,000 dog handlers during the Vietnam War, has also created a database from Department of Defense records. You can find it at the Vietnam Security Police Association website at vspa.com. He told the Virginia Pilot newspaper that he still gets calls all the time from veterans wondering what happened to their dogs. It felt like leaving a brother behind. Even after all these years, they wake up one day and they can't take it anymore. Their dogs are long dead, but they still want to know what happened to him. If you like military animal stories, let me drop another plug for one of my favorite YouTube channels, Tom Scott's channel, particularly the playlist of their quasi-game show, Citation Needed. Look for the video about the warhorse named Sergeant Reckless. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? 
But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Airwave Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. World War I was characterized by trench warfare. And one of the many difficulties of that is that to shoot at the enemy... The first thing you have to expose to him shooting at you is your head. Sticking your head into the line of fire is not conducive to a long career. Enter the periscope rifle. Invented during the Gallipoli campaign in Australia in May of 1915, the device allowed a soldier standing in a trench to take accurate aim and fire without exposing himself to the enemy. The upper mirror of the periscope was fixed so that it looked along the sights of a rifle, and the image was reflected in the lower mirror that the soldier actually looked at. Though less effective than conventional rifles, the periscope rifle proved to be a useful weapon and was soon in use in many frontline trenches. Gallipoli saw the invention of another rifle designed to keep the user more safe, this time by allowing him to be nowhere near it when it fired. It was an automatic rifle, in a very real sense of the word. Australian troops used them to fool their Turkish opponents into believing that their trenches were still manned, even as they retreated. Looking like a piece of a Rube Goldberg device, the rifle was aimed and fixed into position. Two empty tins were placed, one above the other, the top one full of water, and the bottom one with a string tied to it and to the rifle's trigger. A small hole would be punched in the upper tin, and the water would drip into the lower tin. When the bottom tin got heavy enough, it would pull the trigger. A similar rig used fire instead of water, with a trigger string that would be burned by a candle. These ruses were so effective that 80,000 men were able to evacuate with only a handful of casualties. The Lance Corporal who designed the drip rifle was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal and promoted to Sergeant. While many technological advances come from war, the soldiers on the front lines often find themselves looking back in history for offensive and defensive weapons. One such retro weapon became extremely important in the close quarter combat typical of the Great War. You know, the war to end all wars? And that was the Trench Club. The loading time required by standard-issue bolt-action rifles could be a major liability if you were raiding an enemy trench. 
So troops grabbed old pieces of wood, scrap metal from shells, barbed wire, nails, whatever they could scrounge up, and converted them into weapons. If you could find a gnarly, knobby bit of tree, like an Irish shillelagh, all the better. These trench clubs carried the added benefit of being much quieter than a rifle, an essential characteristic for night raids. You could take out multiple enemies without raising the alarm if you were stealthy enough. A medium-sized club, about 16 inches or 40 centimeters, was said to work best within the narrow confines of the trench. Longer clubs were used by British officers as walking sticks, a sort of landed gentry up top, murder down below situation. Another improvised hand weapon that would have looked more at home in a castle with a moat was the gauntlet dagger or punching dagger. Picture a giant metal mitten with a knife coming out of the end of it. The weapon itself was comprised of a crudely made blade often a broken bayonet, and a protective gauntlet made from light sheet steel. A crossbar was fitted inside that the user held. The gauntlet dagger precluded the wearer from carrying anything in that hand, but was otherwise an ideal weapon for brutal close-quarters combat. Not only could it deliver a powerful lethal blow, but it also carried with it a psychological effectiveness. If you saw an enemy rushing toward you in a tight space, with half a bayonet sticking out of the end of his arm, you would probably get a little concerned. The ability to use what's at hand can be a critical skill. Soldiers needed to be able to see their enemy, to keep track of their movements, and to get an idea of how many were out there. But you're not going to walk out into the flat wastes of no man's land to take a head count. Instead, you climb inside a fake tree. First, engineers would find a dead tree near the front that had been blasted by a bomb. They would take extensive photos, measurements, and sketches, and give these to artists who would create an exact replica from iron. To make the bark appear more real, the artists would cover it with rough textured materials like pulverized seashells. The most important part of the tree was the interior. Soldiers would climb a narrow rope ladder through the middle of the hollow fake tree and sit on a metal seat at the top. Sections of the outer bark were metal mesh to cover viewing holes. They would then communicate what they had seen to the troops below. But the real challenge came after construction. Since the front lines were very visible, the fake tree had to be installed at night and as quickly as possible. The engineers would tear out the original tree, dig a hole in place of its roots, and then install the fake tree. When the enemy awoke in the morning, everything on the other side of No Man's Land would look the same as it had the day before. Low-tech and high-tech weapons can be combined for added lethality. World War I began with men on horseback, but ended with men in airplanes. It was the first war in which the airplane played a key role but bombing was an inexact science. Modern targeting systems were half a century away. Even radar wouldn't be developed for 20 more years. Bonus fact, radar is an acronym for Radio Detection and Ranging, a name applied to the system by the US Navy a decade later. Bombs also make distinctive whistling sounds as they fall, which can give the enemy a chance to scurry out of the drop zone or to return fire. Enter 
the flechette. It was essentially an enormous dart with feather fletching. First used by the French in 1914, flechettes fell silently. The mechanism for deploying them was simple. A small canister was attached to the bottom of the plane, with a string tied to the canister's lid. Pulling the string would open the canister, dropping the flechettes on the troops below. Even the best helmets gave little resistance to a steel spike dropped from 5,000 feet. Each canister could hold between 20 and 250 flechettes. However, one French pilot reportedly dropped as many as 18,000 flechettes over the German troops. Darts are essentially little arrows, and where there are arrows, there are bows. In this case, crossbows. But these crossbows propelled grenades. The Sauterelle, French for grasshopper, was a bomb-throwing crossbow used by French and British forces on the Western Front. It was designed to throw a hand grenade in a high trajectory into enemy trenches. It could launch an F-1 grenade over 400 feet or 120 meters. A metal cup held the grenade and a pair of hand cranks on the rack and pinion mechanism were used to cock it. It was lighter and more portable, though less powerful, than the Leech trench catapult that it replaced. Designed by a civilian to do his bit for the war effort, the Leech trench catapult was seven feet in length. It was powered by six to twelve half-inch diameter rubber bands on either side, connected to the horns of the frame by ropes, with a pouch at the end for the ordnance. A simple crank handle wound the winch, drawing down the cable, trigger, and pouch over a painted scale along the length of the main beam, which allowed for a consistent repeated amount of pull. There was a simple brass pointer on the side to set the catapult at the optimum angle of 42.5 degrees. With the bomb primed and pulled to the required strength, the fuse was lit, the trigger was struck with something like a shovel handle, and the bomb flew off in an arc to its target. In theory. In practice, the ungalvanized rubber bands stretched and broke, the bomb got hung up in the pouch, or it flew off in a wonky direction. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Even though I, again, abandoned whole sections of research, this episode has run somewhat longer than usual. So we're going to break it into two parts. Think of it as a bonus extra episode this week. Look for the rest of the episode on Friday. And remember, while you're eating your hot dogs and watching fireworks on the 4th of July, to think about the people whose sacrifice made it possible for us to choose to spend the day eating hot dogs and watching fireworks. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I'll see you again on Friday. Today's episode was brought to you by the word thrush. Thrush. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.